Hey friends, I am excited to be with you today as we look into God's word together. Before we jump in, I wanted to give a huge shout out to our church. A couple of months ago, we asked Maplewood Elementary School if we could provide some pen pals for some of their students uh, during the month of June, just to let these kids know that they are seen and valued. I thought maybe a handful of people would sign up to do this. We had over 60 people agree to be pen pals for students at Maplewood, which is exactly the amount that they had requested. So way to go, Christ community. Way to love your city. We're, we're in a teaching series where we're walking verse by verse through this very significant sermon Jesus gave in the book of Matthew chapters 5 to 7, where Jesus describes in vivid detail what it looks like to be people of his kingdom to align every part of our lives with his values, with his perspective, including those areas that are deeply personal and challenging. Last week, we looked at uh, what Jesus said about our sexuality. Well, well, in today's passage, Jesus addresses the issue of marriage and divorce. Now, let me say right up front, I realize this topic is a very sensitive and painful topic for so many people because so many people's lives have been impacted by divorce. Maybe you've gone through a divorce yourself and you feel the weight of that in terms of anger or betrayal or this nagging feeling of shame and failure, especially in Christian circles. Or maybe your parents got divorced and you carry wounds from that. Or maybe one of your children is going through a divorce and you're agonizing over the impact of that. I mean, divorce is incredibly painful and heart-wrenching and difficult. And that's exactly why Jesus talks about it. He doesn't talk about it to rub our face in it or to intentionally poke at a painful wound. He talks about it because it is so painful and because he longs for a better path for us. So this message is not about shame or condemnation if you've had a divorce. Rather, it's about all of us taking an honest look at the issue of divorce from Jesus' perspective in order to help us experience a healthier marriage. That's my heart for this message. We're, we're not only going to talk about divorce, we're going to talk about how to cultivate a healthy marriage. Even if you're not married, but one day hope to be, this message is worth paying attention to and maybe tucking away for future reference. And if you're happily single, that's awesome. We celebrate that. While, while this message isn't specifically geared towards you, I believe God's spirit will use his word to speak to each of us personally. So let's look at Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32, where Jesus brings up the issue of divorce. It has been said Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to explore the backstory. So when Jesus says in verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, he is specifically referring to a passage in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. For the, for the religious leaders in Jesus' day, this passage in Deuteronomy 24 had become the definitive text on divorce. So let's look at what this passage actually says, and then we'll talk about how they interpreted it. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, 
because he finds something indecent about her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not able, excuse me, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what I want us to notice right off the bat is that this particular passage is not a broad, descriptive passage of God's entire perspective on divorce. It's not. This passage is addressing a very specific situation of case law. A man who marries, excuse me, a man who divorces his wife cannot then go back later and remarry her. Culturally, it's hard for us to understand this command, but it most likely was designed to protect women in that culture from being taken advantage of financially by a man who kicked her out of the house and left her to fend for herself. And now he wants to bring her back in because she has the financial resources from a second marriage. And so clearly the men in that culture had all the cards, right, during that time period. And so in this particular section of the law, Moses says that a woman cannot be discarded without a certificate of divorce. Now that that certificate made the divorce an official end to the marriage so that she could she could marry someone else and be provided for. So again, this law is actually written to protect women in a male-dominated society from being used and taken advantage of. But here's where the controversy with the Pharisees occurred, and it's what Jesus is confronting in this passage. Ironically, it had nothing to do with the actual command about not remarrying your first wife. What the Pharisees focused on was this statement in verse 1, where it says, if the husband finds something indecent about her. The Pharisees took that line and they turned it into a justification to divorce their wife for any and every reason. If she was a horrible cook, if she wasn't pretty enough, if she had bad breath or perhaps he found someone better, the Pharisees said it was okay. So the Pharisees had taken this one line from Deuteronomy 24 and created this entire system that allowed them to get rid of their wives whenever they felt like it whenever she wasn't meeting their needs. It was a horrible practice. That's what Jesus is confronting here. Now, thankfully, several chapters later in the book of Matthew, this same issue arises again. Um, only this time, Jesus addresses it in much more detail. So look with me at Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? There it is again. The Pharisees want to know if Jesus supports their view that a man should be able to divorce his wife for any cause at all. So check out Jesus' response. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Notice, Jesus doesn't argue his case by getting into the weeds regarding divorce. No, instead, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, in which we see God's original design for marriage. Marriage is this sacred union between a husband and a wife who have both left their families and have now been united with each other permanently so as to become one flesh. It is the sacred union that we, it is in the sacred union that we learn and discover what genuine love looks like. A love that serves and gives and cares for this other person. It's a love that is other person focused. See, that's what God is after in this thing called marriage. Marriage is a laboratory in which we learn how to love the way he loves. We learn what genuine love looks like. In other words, God's ultimate purpose in marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us holy, to help us learn how to love like he loves. So when you compare Jesus' vision for marriage to the Pharisees' vision for marriage, you realize they are light years apart. For the Pharisees, marriage was all about their needs being met, no matter how it impacted the woman. Genuine love was not even on their radar, which is why Jesus answers their question about divorce the way he did. Their question revealed that they didn't understand the true purpose of marriage. And they still didn't get it, even after Jesus' response. I mean, look at the next verse. They have a follow-up question here. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus says, look, Moses didn't command you to get divorced. Moses permitted you to divorce in certain circumstances. But you guys have taken that, you guys, you Pharisees have taken that permission and turned it into a way to use women and devalue the sacred covenant of marriage. See, this is what Jesus is getting at when he says anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus is highlighting the damage that is caused when we treat divorce flippantly, this idea of adultery was more than just having sex with someone outside your marriage. It was a breaking of covenant. Think about what, think about what happens when you take two objects that are super glued together and then you try to pull them apart. It doesn't go well. They don't separate cleanly. Marriage is a spiritual, emotional, and physical supergluing of two people together. Divorce is the tearing apart of that union, which is why it's so painful and damaging and why Jesus warns us so strongly against it. Now, I want you to look again at verse 8, because in this verse, Jesus reveals the root cause of divorce. You see, he says, Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hard. That's the problem. I mean, when you boil it all down, almost all of our relational struggles, not just divorce, but all of our relational struggles can be summarized in that one statement. Our hearts become hard. This word speaks of a stubbornness and obstinance. We get stuck in our self-centeredness. 
we become unwilling to yield, to serve, to forgive, to put the needs of someone else before our own. Hard-heartedness is the opposite of genuine love. It is pushy, demanding, rude, impatient, self-centered. It holds on to grudges and is focused on getting its own way. This kind of hard-heartedness leads to relational devastation, relational destruction. And all of us are vulnerable to this. All of us are vulnerable to this. I often refer to John Gottman, who over several decades studied the interactions between thousands of husbands and wives. And eventually he claimed that he could watch a couple interact for several minutes and determine with 90% accuracy whether that relationship would end in divorce. He identified what he referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse four indicators that a marriage is likely headed towards divorce. Here they are. First indicator is criticism. One spouse or both spouses focusing on what they don't like about the other person or what irritates them, which eventually spills out into words of criticism towards them, either, you know, when they're alone or in public, which often leads to the second indicator Gottman discovered, contempt a growing feeling of disdain or disgust toward our spouse rather than a genuine affection and caring for them. Third indicator, blame shifting. Rather than owning and apologizing for hurts, Gottman noticed how one or both spouses start to shift the blame. They got defensive. They they justified their behavior rather than owning the hurt that they caused which leads to the fourth indicator of a marriage headed towards divorce, what he called stonewalling. This is a spouse who has completely shut their heart down. There is no heart engagement. There's no empathy. There's no listening. It's like talking to a wall. What what Godman is describing is what hard-heartedness looks like in a relationship. Now, but now, please hear me. My point is not to pile shame or accusations on those who have been through a divorce. No, my point is for all of us to see how easily our hearts can become hardened over time if we allow self to be king in our relationships and in our marriage. That self-centeredness will cause significant relational damage, even leading to the destruction of our marriage. In this passage, Jesus is relentlessly going after our heart. The Pharisees just wanted to, you know, know if they can divorce their wife for any reason. And Jesus keeps trying to get them to see that they are missing the point. Jesus is calling them to a higher standard, a standard of committed, faithful, persevering, self-giving love. The kind of love that God has for us and demonstrates towards us. Now, even Jesus acknowledges here that in this broken world, divorce is going to happen. And sometimes it's justified when the marriage covenant is irreparably damaged, like in the case of, uh, of repeated unrepentant sexual immorality, which Jesus mentions here, or when there is significant abuse or neglect. The, 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 these decisions about divorce in these circumstances are never easy. Um, And I just want you to know that we as your church would be honored to walk with you 
and process these things with you. If you're in a destructive marriage situation, please email or call the church. Now, as I said earlier, I don't want to, I don't want to focus only on divorce in this message because Jesus didn't only focus on divorce in this passage. Jesus' primary response to the Pharisees, remember, to the Pharisees' question about divorce, his primary response was to try to get them to focus on marriage. The best antidote to divorce is to work at making a healthy marriage a marriage where we are intentionally cultivating this oneness that Jesus describes. Okay, so how do we do that? How how can we cultivate greater oneness in our marriage? Well, instead of cultivating hard-heartedness through criticism, contempt, blame-shifting, and stonewalling, God invites us to cultivate the opposite of those things, to intentionally pursue four practices that can deepen our experience of oneness. So let's talk about these four practices. Practice number one, affirmation. Affirmation. Rather than focusing on our attention on what we don't like about our spouse and frequently criticizing them when they mess up or they fail to meet our expectations, what if we chose to speak words of life and affirmation on them? In Ephesians 4, 29, we are commanded to only speak words that are helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, criticism tears down. Affirmation builds people up. Affirmation actually helps create a deepening experience of attachment, a oneness with our spouse. And we all know this to be the case in any relationship. I mean, do you feel more drawn to someone who frequently criticizes you and points out what you're doing wrong? Or do you feel more drawn and connected to someone who frequently affirms you and speaks blessing over you? Imagine the impact in our marriage if we intentionally and frequently affirmed our spouse. Let's break the cycle of criticism and instead speak words of affirmation. Affirm your spouse in some way every day. Thank them for something they did. Compliment them for something good you see in them. Text them something that you love about them, and you will find your oneness grows. Practice number two, affection. Affection. One of the most powerful and transformative experiences in our lives as humans is when we are delighted in. It starts from the moment of our birth. I mean, think about this. For a newborn baby, it is so important that when they look up, when they look up, they see faces that are delighting in them, right? You know, they see faces like that. More and more scientific research, brain research is revealing that this is actually what enables us as human beings. It it enables us to attach to someone else. Now, here's what is so cool. In the blessing that we often speak in our services from Numbers chapter 6, there's this line, the Lord make his face shine on you. What is that talking about? It's talking about us experiencing the Lord delighting in us. Delighting in us like a parent with their newborn. See, when we live in that reality of God delighting in us, his face shining on us, we feel more closely attached to him. 
I mean, it really is this, this feeling his delight that is found the foundation for our experience of attachment with God. And think about this. This has huge implications for our marriage. When our spouse experiences us delighting in them, they actually feel more attached to us. They experience more joy being with us. So rather than cultivating contempt, we can instead choose to cultivate affection and delight. And in doing so, it deepens our experience of oneness. Now, look, I know this is going to sound super simplistic, but it is absolutely true. You can deepen your spouse's connection to you by simply smiling at them. By smiling at them. When you, when you see them walk into a room or you, you see them coming towards you, let your countenance reflect affection and delight. It will pour life into your marriage. And please hear me, this is not about feelings. This is about something we can choose to do. This is about something we can grow in through practice. Smiling actually increases our own level of joy. Just choosing to smile increases our own level of joy. And it pours joy into the person that we're smiling at. Unless it's a stranger and they think it's creepy that we're smiling at them or whatever. But the, 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 there, there, are, there are other simple ways to communicate delight and affection besides smiling. When's the last time you laughed together? When's the last time you played a game you used to play when you first married? When's the last time you held hands or prayed for each other before going to sleep or said, I love you before you headed out for work? These simple acts of affection can have a powerful impact on our experience of oneness. Practice number three, humility. See, humility is the opposite of blame shifting. And it has the opposite effect. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sinned um, against him and sinned into the picture, the first thing Adam did was shift the blame. He blamed his wife. This beautiful oneness that had been theirs in Genesis chapter two was now completely broken. And so I go back to that scene and I wonder what would have happened if Adam had had the guts and the humility to say, I am so sorry. It was my fault. I, I just stood there and did nothing while you ate the fruit. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't try to stop you. And then Eve says, no, Adam, it was my fault. I was the one who ate the fruit first. And then Adam says, no, it was my fault. And they have their first fight. See, I mean, that, that kind of humility would have drawn them together, even in the mess of their sin and their brokenness. And the same thing is true in our marriages. In Colossians 3, Paul urges us to clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The cross of Christ enables us to humble ourselves and apologize when we mess up and when we hurt our spouse. And the cross of Christ enables us to humble ourselves and forgive our spouse when they mess up or they hurt us. The more we shift the blame and get defensive, the greater the distance will be between us. But the more we embrace humility, the greater our experience of oneness. Practice 
Number four, open-hearted communication. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is expressing his disappointment in the distance that he feels in his relationship with that church. And here's what he says to them. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, open wide your hearts also. You see, when we close our heart to our spouse, when we stop communicating and instead stonewall, we create distance. And so the antidote to that is to choose to open our heart to our spouse, to share with each other, not just about the weather and the kids and the Rockies or whatever, but no, to actually share what's going on inside of us and to listen to our spouse share what's going on inside of them. This is something we have to be intentional about. We have to intentionally build into our marriage or it won't happen. It will not happen automatically. At least I found that it won't. A few years ago, Raylene and I realized this disconnect, emotional disconnect. And, and so we created this time on Wednesday nights after we've got our son Joshua to bed, rather than going to our bedroom and watching something on Netflix or reading, what we do now is we get go. We each get our favorite beverage, sweet tea or coffee or hot tea or whatever. We go into our prayer room, this room that we've created, and we sit on the sofa there and we look into each other's eyes and we ask, how is your heart doing? How's your heart doing? Now, that question can mean any number of things. How is your heart doing regarding our relationship? Like, how are, how are we doing? Or how is your heart doing in terms of life or work or kids or stress level, all that? Man, this has been so incredibly helpful for our relationship because otherwise we were, I mean, obviously we were around each other living in the same house, but we weren't really communicating on a heart level regarding where we were at emotionally or spiritually. So I encourage you, find a regular time, a consistent time where you can open wide your hearts to each other. And when you do that, I think you're going to find your marriage moving towards greater oneness. All four of these practices, affirmation, affection, humility, communication, all four of them are things we can intentionally do in our marriage to pour life into those places where disappointment or distance or coldness or hurts or boredom have set in. These are all specific things we can do to help grow in our oneness with each other, which is God's design for our marriage, oneness. One of the most encouraging statements to me in this whole passage in Matthew 19 is when Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God has joined us together and he is eager to fight for our marriage and to help us in our marriage. Let's not put our marriage on autopilot. Let's invest in it. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us work on our marriage relationship and strengthen it. In light of that, we've put together a list of resources that we recommend, resources about marriage that we recommend, books, on, books and podcasts, counselors, 
to help us nurture and strengthen our marriage relationship. So you can find that list of resources on our app under the need help section or on the link provided. See, friends, here's the the bottom line. We all desperately need Jesus to help us love the way he loves, the way he wants us to love. Whether we're divorced or married or remarried or single, The reality is we all need Jesus today. We all need his forgiveness, his encouragement, his affirmation, his love flowing in and through us. Let's not live in our past regrets. Let's live today in his power, choosing with his help to love the way he loves Let's pray. So I want to encourage you right now, as I often do, I want to encourage you to quiet your heart and to be in a posture where you're saying, Jesus, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? For those of you who are married, are there places where you've been allowing criticism or contempt or blame shifting or stonewalling to kind of creep in to your marriage? Would you confess that to the Lord? Just confess that to him. Receive his cleansing. So what would it look like for you to cultivate oneness in your marriage through affirmation, affection, humility, open-hearted communication? Are there any specific action steps that Jesus is prompting you to take? You know, this is so important that we don't wait for the other person. Well, I'm going to wait for them. They're the one who, you know, just... No, we we can choose to do these things. We can take the initiative and choose to do these things. So let's just ask the Lord to help us in whatever action step, whatever specific step he's wanting us to take. God, I pray for every marriage watching, and the things that you're stirring in our hearts, would you give us the courage to move towards those things, to do those things so that we would be moving towards oneness in our marriage? I pray that. I pray that blessing, that strengthening in every marriage watching this. Now, for those of you who have experienced divorce, I'm wondering, what would it look like for you to offer that to the Lord, to release to him any shame that you feel, any pain that you carry, any wounds, any bitterness, any of those things. What would it look like to offer that to Jesus? Why don't you do that right now? And let him fill you with his love. Let him fill you with his grace, with his forgiveness if needed, with his healing. 
Father, I pray for those who have experienced divorce. You would pour out grace and forgiveness and healing and love. For all of us, God, we want to grow in our relationships. We want to grow to love the way you love us. So Holy Spirit, fill us and enable us to walk in that in all of our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.